Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is a new episode of the Tech Policy Podcast, and I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we have Tom Lee, policy lead at Mapbox, a location data platform for mobile and web applications, joining us to talk about privacy, how do they map the box, and a lot of other exciting things. Tom, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tom, for our listeners who maybe don't know what your company does. Can you give us a quick overview? Sure. So we are a map and location services company. The map part is maybe kind of self-explanatory. We provide these beautiful customizable maps to developers uh, who then provide them to end users through websites and apps and in-vehicle experiences, things like that. The location services are what tend to be more confusing, but it turns out there's a bunch of things you need to make a complete map experience. So things like being able to look up where an address is on a map uh, or to get directions to it, those are the kinds of services we offer. Uh, increasingly, some more kind of sci-fi cool stuff like augmented reality experiences, getting realistic real-world map features into video games. Um, if it has to do with location, we've probably written software about it. In the previous conversations that you and I had, you mentioned that you guys are the ones who provide the map services for Snapchat. Yeah, that's right. So the Snap Maps, that's you. The Snap Maps, yeah. We're in all kinds of applications, um, some of them more obvious than others. But if you've got the Weather Channel app on your phone or TikTok uh, or Snapchat, yeah, we're powering that map experience. TikTok is definitely that app that I am in the generation of millennial that I'm like, I'm too old for that. I can't, I can't have a new app on my phone. I don't understand it. I'm right there with you. I think, yeah, the weather app is more my speed these days. But people get excited about this stuff, and I'm only too happy to talk about it. Amazing. Okay, so how did your company start? How old is it? Because we were just talking about it's maybe a startup, but not really. Yeah, so we started here in D.C. in 2010. Um, we were originally a consultancy doing work for development projects. So USAID, uh, the World Bank, stuff like that. Actually, we, our CEO often talks about his experience on the ground helping to map election results in Afghanistan. Uh, that experience and ones like it kind of unveiled the need for mapping software that didn't exist yet. So in the course of their work, they kept iterating and developing new stuff and eventually realized they had a product on their hands. The consultancy still exists called Development Seed, and it's just over in Logan Circle. They're doing great. But Mapbox decided they want to spin out and build a product company, which, you know, is a different model, different kind of business, different way to structure things. Uh, so we've been doing that and uh, we've been having a lot of fun at it. I've been with them, I guess this is my fifth year. And uh, yeah, at this point, we've had, um, we've had a lot of success. It's been really fun to kind of live the tech company whirlwind. That is a very exciting way for a startup to kind of be introduced into the world. So it's not two guys in a garage somewhere in California. It's DC and just kind of developing from a consultancy. That's amazing. And you were, uh, what was your journey with a company? Well, so I'd, I'd kind of been in parallel to these guys for ages, writing awful Drupal software here in DC for a variety of different firms. Uh, but when I came to Mapbox, it was to join the geocoding team. So, uh, I was coming off of uh, five years as the CTO at the Sunlight Foundation, a nonprofit that works on government transparency and, and uses technology to address that problem and, and cares a lot about open data. So I uh, continue to be an open data true believer. And the job was, uh, let's find open data to power the Mapbox geocoder. So I did that and, and got really immersed in the engineering for a number of years. Tech Freedom definitely uh, has worked with the Sunlight Foundation and a lot of initiatives because we do believe in open um, access and transparency when it comes to government. Um, 
okay, so you have a very interesting background because you have been on the engineering side and now you do policy. Um, what exactly, um, aside from providing these maps, before we get into you know the policy side, what exactly is a business model? So you guys just sell the maps, sell the services. That's how you make the money. Yeah. So we're a business to business company. We don't have an app that shows up in the app store directly. We sell to companies that produce those apps. Um, and yeah, we sell uh, we sell the services that power the map experience. So most of our client facing code is open source. You can go on GitHub and inspect it, see exactly how it works. Um, and in, in many cases, you can you know stand up this stuff yourself if you want to, uh, but we're going to deliver worldwide first-class performance and some really advanced server-side capabilities that are going to deliver a, a fantastic experience if you connect that software to it. So that's the basic model. You, know, you, you come to Mapbox, you use our generous free tier to create your app, and then when you start to get successful, you'll hit uh, you know, layers beyond our free tier where we start to charge for API calls. Uh, I'm sure our listeners would wonder... What kind of data do you guys collect? How do you store it? What happens with it? Yeah, so um, the underlying map data comes from a bunch of sources. We cut our teeth on OpenStreetMap and other open data sources, uh, but we also power experiences that are using proprietary data sets from big names in the industry like TomTom and here. Um, The most interesting data set, and the one I suspect we want to talk about today, though, is the telemetry data that we collect. So just like Google Maps and Apple Maps and many of our other competitors, we collect anonymized location data from end users to power our platform. We get between two and 300 million miles on a typical day. And that lets us provide capabilities that are competitive with those giants uh, for things like navigation, figuring out when you know there's vandalism to our data sources, or even identifying roads that haven't been mapped yet. How do you anonymize? data? That's a great question. Uh, so there's a bunch of different steps that we do to make sure that this data remains secure and anonymous and poses no privacy risk to end users. Um, basically, on the device, we have first very strong encryption guarantees. So certificate pinning uh, using well-accepted standards and, and the best technology we can, hardware devices, hardware security modules are called, uh, to make sure it remains secure on the service so as well. So you make devices? No, sorry. We use Amazon's uh, infrastructure. Got it. Okay. Uh, and in general, this is like actually the, the most important thing to say about crypto is you should never make your own stuff unless you employ a PhD cryptographer. It's a terrible idea. Uh, but we have people who know exactly what they should be using on that front. When it comes to the actual location data, um, it's kind of an interesting corner of the privacy and data anonymization world. So we are interested primarily in how quickly people are moving along roads. And that lets us provide accurate ETAs, you know, figuring out whether someone is traveling at rush hour or whether there's a, a traffic jam because of construction. Um, We don't care about where someone's journey started or where it ends, and we don't want to really know where they stopped along the way. Any stuff that can tie them to a particular journey and let you get back to their identity. So we do a few things. When the data arrives, we chop it into segments. We remove all the identifiers that are associated with those segments, so they're kind of shuffled and mixed up. We also remove the beginning and end of each journey, and we remove any point of the journey, or any segment, I should say, where the user hasn't been moving around that much, which is usually, we call it a dwell in the industry, typically means that they've stepped into a shop or they're at home or something like that. So what we're left with are these segments, which can't be reconnected back into a journey, that give us a really good idea of how quickly people are moving through a city or along a highway, but can't be tied back to an individual. But you can still give people the whole estimate and map out the journey without having the start point and the end point? Yeah. So what we wind up with is uh, a speed typically sliced by hour across the entire week 
for each road segment in the world. And uh, that lets us, when we calculate a path or many potential paths from one point to another, to take a look at when the user is going to hit that segment and make an estimate of how long it'll take them to get through it. And the difference is really stark. Like the first version of our traffic product uh, was based just on connectivity of roads, right? So like how many lanes are there? Uh, how long is this segment? And you can get an estimate out of that, but it's totally flat across the week. If you look at, you know, let's pick a random airport, right? If you want to get from the, the airport in uh, Bogota to, to downtown Chapinero, um, we would give you the same estimate regardless of the time of week. But if you look at the actual trip ETAs based on real telemetry coming from users, uh, depending on traffic conditions, that can vary by time of day by you know, 70, 80%. So it's absolutely essential that we have this real world telemetry to give people a, a decent experience. Otherwise, we're just gonna have totally inaccurate ETAs. And for someone whose English is her third language, what is telemetry? Telemetry, okay, so in the most broad sense, it just means, um, readings taken at a remove. In this particular case, though, we're referring to GPS coordinates that are originating on the user's phone. So the phone's got some idea of where it is when you're looking at a Mapbox map. Uh, it's based on a mix of GPS and cell towers and Wi-Fi signals. It's kind of a black box that comes from the underlying operating system. But we collect that stuff based on what's available, which is determined by uh, how much accuracy the app is asking for. Uh, and then we perform all those anonymization steps that I alluded to and collected our servers. We have now answered the question of who you guys are, what you guys do, and why you do it. My question is, what is the reason Mapbox decided to be involved and included in the policy debates about privacy? Well, so we're in a kind of awkward position because a lot of our competitors have billions of users and those users know who they are and lawmakers know who they are and they're worrying about the use case presented there um, and, and they're working to preserve it. So we're just a B2B company. We are not a household name and we probably never will be. Uh, but we think that we are offering really strong privacy guarantees and a valuable service to people. And we want to make sure that reform takes our use case into account and protects the kind of anonymization measures we're putting in place. Uh, so that's the reason we're engaging with a privacy debate, because this stuff is really complicated. Um, you know, tech literacy in not just Congress, but legislators across the country is not what it could be. And uh, we think it's really important to kind of it convey what nuance we can so that the best policy gets written. What kind of conversations that we right now have around privacy do you think are the most crucial and important ones? Well, I mean, right now I'd say things are dominated by the California Consumer Privacy Act and the deadline that it's... Uh, January 1st, 2020, CCPA right. coming yeah. down the pipeline. Pipe, pipeline. The clock is ticking for sure. So um, we'd sort of been anticipating that um, we'd see federal reform, uh, likely using that as a floor or source of inspiration. Um, that, I would say, is looking a little bit less likely at the moment. So uh, figuring out what things look like at the state level is what we're most worried about right now. And there's still a lot of action happening amending the CCPA, but also efforts popping up in state houses across the country that we're going to have to figure out how to navigate on top of our existing GDPR obligations. Let's, let's go through some of them, um, and then you can tell me which ones you want to focus on. Federal national privacy legislation on federal level, federal preemption. What do you think about that? Should we have the same privacy rules apply across the country? Would that be something that benefits both consumers and companies? Yeah, I, I think it would. We are a small company. We, uh, you know, 
okay, maybe 400 people isn't isn't small, small, right? But we still have a pretty small legal team. Um, making maps is complicated. We've got a lot of things for them to worry about. Um, dealing with the GDPR implementation process for our clients took hundreds and hundreds of hours of their time. We can't do this 50 or 52 or however many more times, right? Um, so yeah, preempting and giving Americans a, a set of guarantees that don't change when they cross a border, we think is a great idea, not only for companies like us, but for end users too. Let's look into the CCPA, the California Act that we were just talking about. What in the California Act makes you happy and what in it makes you worry? Well, um, I think that you know it, it gets it a lot. Uh, it, it's a good starting place. So the people behind it thought about this carefully. They engaged with privacy advocates and technologists who've been working on Do Not Track and similar efforts for a long time. Um, and I think the compromise wound up in a pretty good place. Our main concerns with the CCPA were related to what we considered to just be oversights because the legislative version was kind of written in a hurry. So um, in particular, I mentioned you know the importance of anonymization to our data practices. The original version of the CCPA had definitional language alluding to data depersonalization and anonymization, providing kind of some carve-outs related to that. But that definition wasn't hooked up to the legislative text correctly. Um, there's an amendment that I think is going to fix that. Uh, another thing related to it is, uh, that we're a little bit worried about, uh, but which looks like it's on its way to getting fixed, is the definition of consumer. So there's no real distinction made between end users, you know, you and I in the context of using a social media app on our phone, say, or someone in a professional context who's doing work for hire. Uh, some of the customers we have for our routing product work for fleets. They're delivery drivers and their employers getting directions from us and tracking the efficiency of the operation of that fleet so that they can cut costs and lower prices. And um, under the CCPA as originally written, uh, that driver would have a right to export or delete data collected about him or her even after they'd left to work for a competitor, which we think is probably not what the authors of the CCPA originally intended. So there's a bunch of stuff like that. Also, you know, how IP addresses trigger some requirements around um, personal data protections, um, where we think it's really just a matter of cleaning it up in the rulemaking or in the various amendments that are flying around right now. I believe there are 45 potential amendments right now of CCPA that are being considered because there are a lot of um, mistakes and misconceptions and things that had good you know, good idea behind it or good intention that are going to backfire in a major way and break the internet one way or another. Um, okay. So you, you're on a mission to make sure um, a legislators know what they're talking about. They know how this things work. You and I were in a panel where we were just briefing staffers on a federal level about what anonymization is, what, how, what is data portability? How does this work on just you know, basic engineering technology level. Um, and you obviously engage in the policy debate more. Um, what is the main privacy reform goal for you guys? So supporting reform is probably the top line, right? We think that it's overdue, frankly. Um, Mapbox is not in the advertising business. That gives us some freedom that um, some of our competitors don't have and lets us offer really strong privacy guarantees. So we're, we're proud of where we are. We want to talk about how we implement this stuff. Um, but we also want to make sure that people writing reform take into account how our business is shaped and um, you know why it's important, why it's useful. People get a lot of value out of the kind of location services that we offer and that other people offer through similar techniques. So we want to make sure that space is preserved for uh, these kinds of 
approaches as long as strong privacy guarantees are also pro- uh, provided. What are the main privacy guarantees that you would want to see in any legislation on any level? Um, I think that um, a meaningful definition of anonymization uh, is is probably the the key of to to what people need to see, um, and you know meaningful consequences for when inadequate resources or attention are directed to uh, to protecting systems. Breaches are really hard to protect against. One of the nice things about the CCPA is that it doesn't say if you have a breach, you've automatically done something terrible and we're going to sue you into oblivion. It says that you need to take appropriate steps and make a, a you know a correct effort. I didn't want to say reasonable because that sounds like too low a bar. Um, so, for example, uh, the stuff that we do to protect our systems is, is one, just having like a top-notch security team. We run trainings every October or Hacktober, as they call it. There are USB sticks littered around the Mapbox office begging for you to pick them up and plug them into your computer without thinking about it, at which point you will, um, I think, either lose a point or gain a point. Anyway, you're less likely to get a T-shirt for good security practices at the end of October. Um, you know, phishing campaigns, stuff like that. We also work with with real hackers through Hacker One for a bug bounty program uh, and go through various services. Certifications like SOC 2 to harden this stuff. So there, there are, you know, existing standards and practices that you can undertake to, to make sure that you're treating the data you collect carefully. And do you think that there are some, what are the catch-22s of anonymization? Is there um, a reason why we should uh, be very careful and look uh, into it more when we try to write it into a law? I, I would, yeah, so anonymization is really tough to do right um, because of something that researchers sometimes refer to as the mosaic effect, which is where external data sets can be brought to bear on your data set and provide some additional re-identification power. Uh, it's hard to fully anticipate what that looks like. Um, now, there are techniques for quantifying this. Researchers have created a whole field. Uh, differential privacy is a, a mathematical approach to quantifying the re-identification risk associated with querying a data set uh, and provides sort of um, you know, parametric definitions of how to inject noise into that process. And given a, a finite set of queries against your data set, offer guarantees about uh, against re-identification. Um, this stuff gets complicated in a hurry. You really need a specialist to ensure that you are protecting your users adequately. Um, so the other approach you can take is, and honestly, they're complementary. It's not either or, is keeping the stuff under lock and key, keeping it tightly held, limiting the number of people inside the organization or elsewhere who have access to it. And I would say that's probably the major pitfall is not appreciating the privacy risk of what you're holding, whether it's something simple like access logs uh, or being cavalier about user access. You know, developers need to download data sometimes to do their work, to debug. And unless you're careful, it's easy to get sloppy and let them keep it on their laptops to go home with them. Um, It's really, really important to just be scared witless about this stuff if you're collecting it. So obviously some internal security procedures and on top of that, that was what always um, caught my eye was that others can have additional data sets and then put together as, you know, as a little mosaic effect. Yeah. uh, Put together back a picture of a user or of a consumer that you have just by, you know, somehow put analyzing the data. If you wanted our listeners to remember one thing about what Mapbox does and what you guys believe in and what you're fighting for, what would that be? 
I would say, uh, you know, if you do a web search for Mapbox and privacy, you'll probably either find our testimony before Senate Judiciary or the blog post I wrote about tips for developing with location and privacy in mind. And those are great starting points. Um, These are solvable problems. I don't want to scare anybody too much, uh, but it's really worth taking this stuff seriously. Um, You know, I I worry that consumers have kind of lost faith in how the apps that we all use and rely on are are treating our data, and they deserve to have confidence in how their data is being used. We've gone to pretty great lengths, I think, to be respectful of people's privacy while still offering the capabilities we need to offer for our business. Um, and, and, you know, we, we think it's time for reform to probably enshrine that so everyone's on the same page. I'm sure our listeners really appreciate what you do. And I personally really appreciate Snapchat maps but because they're a lot of fun, especially around holidays. Excellent. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can find our show on Spotify, iTunes, and any other platform that you listen to your shows on. Please leave us a review so others can find the show. Thank you for joining. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.